If you were to raise your prices by 10 to 20%, how many sales would you lose? If you were to drop your prices by 10 to 20%, how many sales do you think you'd gain? And which is more profitable? And how exactly do you determine price elasticity? That and more coming up on the marketingandservice.com podcast. Hey, Justin Veruzzo here from marketingandservice.com, the podcast to help you build your business by creating incredible customer relationships. If you find value in this episode, please take a moment to follow or subscribe. And if you want to do me a huge personal favor, leave a five-star review. It means so much to me, and it's what helps keeps me going and keeps me motivated. I'd love to hear from you, so please hit me up on the marketingandservice.com Facebook page. What marketing challenges are you having with your business? And what would you love to learn more about? Let me know. I'd love to hear from you. You can always send me an email, justin at marketingandservice.com. So I want to jump right into the concept of price elasticity or the price elasticity of demand. Uh, And what this means is price elasticity is explaining the flexibility of your price. Essentially, we know that there are things that if you price them lower, people will buy more of them. Uh, And there are things that if you price things higher, people will buy less, either because they cannot afford it or they choose not to afford it because there are better alternatives available which are affordable. The secret here is that there is not really a specific formula to determine how elastic your prices. Of course, you can test these things. If you bumped up your prices 5%, will you lose a bunch of customers that will create a net loss? Or might you just lose one customer, but the other 99 customers will happily pay the additional price and you'll actually make more money. And I know on the surface, it sounds like a simple exercise, but I think there's an element of this that a lot of people miss. And to me, and I know I've discussed this a lot on the podcast, that element is creating incredible value. You want to create a great relationship that provides enormous value to your customer. So while price elasticity of demand as a teaching theory is used in economics, and there are specific formulas that can be used to determine the price elasticity of something. But in the case of a business that's selling products or services, I think you have to look at price elasticity and think about how much additional value can you provide if you increase your price. And likewise, if you start with something too expensive, can you compensate and bring that price and reel it in a little bit and then create the demand that you were initially looking to create? And I want to say this is very different from supply and demand. That's something you hear a lot, especially right now. We're facing rapid inflation, supply chain issues, Uh, Everything in consumer America is a disaster right now as I record this podcast, and it is absolutely going to get far worse. And because of that, there are some things that have gone up in price, like cars. It's very difficult to buy a car right now because you simply cannot get one on the lot. What that means is that dealers will charge a premium. The premium that they're getting away with charging is not because the car manufacturers are suddenly providing a ton more value in their vehicles. It is simply because you cannot find one. So when the dealer does eventually get a car, they have zero incentive to cut any deals 
sales and they're going to charge MSRP or in a lot of cases more than MSRP because there are people willing to pay it because of a very small supply. But when we're looking at price elasticity, we're taking supply out of the equation. We're just going to assume for the purpose of this exercise that the supply is plentiful. And no matter how many you sell of whatever it is that you sell, you can get more. Whether it's a service, you can get more. If it's product, you can always get more. And those costs are going to be fixed for the sake of this example. So obviously the goal with every product and service you sell is to maximize profitability, but also maximize your total sales volume, right? If you sell something and you make a lot of money, the goal is always to sell more. But we know that this is always a bell curve, right? So if you're on the lower end of this curve, it probably means that you're selling a lot more items. But if you raise the price, you wouldn't lose that many customers and that price increase would make you more profitable, right? And then on the other side of the bell, of course, as a product gets more and more and more expensive, eventually you just price people out. It doesn't matter how much value you offer. There is a hard limit on a lot of goods. And that is a limit that can often be tested and a limit that has been put to the test in a lot of examples. So I don't want to talk about formulas or mathematical equations or any of this really technical economic stuff. What I want to do is provide some real world examples of where we've seen how companies secretly test price elasticity with the consumer. And one of the ones that comes to mind and the easiest one that would come to mind are things that are considered inelastic. And what that means is uh, the, you know, you think of an elastic band or rubber band, right? Inelastic would be something that doesn't stretch, which means it doesn't have flexibility. It means that you're going to buy it no matter how much it costs for the most part. And when you look at this, you can look at something like milk. Milk is something that families have to have, they stay healthy, and it is normally insensitive to price. People will, of course, feel it, and they'll complain they don't want to pay more for milk, but you have to have it in the house, and you are going to make a cut somewhere else before you make a cut on milk. Gasoline, of course, is probably the number one, because me personally, I don't drink a lot of milk, but gasoline... I do have to drive my car. I have to drive to work. Uh, everyone, most people need to drive somewhere. Gasoline is something that uh, is inelastic. Uh, whether it's $6 a gallon or $2 a gallon, you still have to fill your tank and go to work. Now, uh, there could be some things that start to curve that demand down with gasoline. If it's $6 a gallon, you may choose not to do your cross-country drive this summer because it would be astronomically expensive. So those are things that you might put off for a different time. But for the most part, you're going to pay whatever it is because you have to. Now, of course, there is a limit where it could potentially, let's just say it's $150 a gallon. You might say it's not even worth going to work anymore at that price and you just stay home. Uh, if that happens, then nobody buys gasoline, nobody makes any money, and this whole experiment is a bust. So again, we're trying to talk about these things within reason. I know there's always extenuating circumstances and there's times things get kind of crazy uh, and there's always exceptions to every rule. So don't take this as the law. Just take it in and kind of absorb it to think in the back of your mind how companies have done this. So let's talk about some things that have shown to be 
elastic. Uh, one of the first things that comes to mind for me is Apple. Apple introduced the initial original iPhone in 2007. And just a few months after it was released, I believe it was released, if I recall, in June of 2007. In September of 2007, they realized they were not selling nearly as many of these what at the time was a groundbreaking device as they expected. Now, the reason was it was way more expensive than any other cell phone on the market. And despite the enormous value proposition that was built into that device, it literally was too expensive. Everyone complained about it when it came out and they said, this is really cool, but there's just no way we can justify spending this much money on a cell phone. Obviously, today, that debate is a moot point. But back then, you got to realize most phones were free from their carrier. And if you did buy a phone, you were generally buying it for about two or $300. The carrier was covering the rest. And even if you bought the phone outright new, you were normally spending about four or $500 on top top-of-the-line premium phones. So when the iPhone came out, now you're talking six, seven, eight hundred dollars for a phone. That was insane. So just a few months after the phone came out, Apple cut the price $200 on that phone. And this was one time, and I know Apple has had issues in the past with PR, but this was probably known as one of the worst PR blunders that Apple ever made. They really went out with a greedy mindset and said, we can make a windfall on this new device because it's so cool. And the bottom line is that consumers just weren't willing to pay that much for a phone, regardless of what the value was. Their only solution was to drop the price by $200. When they did this, of course, they had a surge in sales and they sold a lot more phones. And we now know, looking in retrospect, it was the right thing and it created a revolution in cell phones. But in 2007, if you had just bought your phone and now three months later you found out not only is it $200 cheaper, but they dropped the model you bought and it was the next model up they dropped by $200, they were furious. They were so angry that Apple had actually came out and said, we will issue everyone a $100 refund who bought the phone at the original price. $100 is only half of $200. Uh, they're Apple. They got away with it. This is not the right way to test price elasticity. Now, of course, there's such thing, and it's very prevalent in the tech world, with early adopters. As an early adopter, you're the type of person who loves new technology, and you're willing to spend top dollar for it. And you know that over time, the price of that technology comes down. If you've ever bought an electronic device, chances are whatever it is, is far cheaper two years later than it was two years before. And in a lot of stuff in tech, within 10 years, it's literally garbage and you're throwing it away. So with that in mind, you can charge early adopters more for something that's brand new because you've got to recoup a lot of costs up front. And the hope is as more people buy the device and the adoption spreads, the cost of manufacturing will start to come down, the processes are improved, the cost of the overall technology starts to come down, and you have a more profitable device at a more affordable price point. That's normal, and that usually happens over six months, a year, two years. Uh, it does not usually happen within two months of a product launch. So this was a really bad way to test the waters, but they did nonetheless. And in their defense, this was something that they had nothing to compare to, so they weren't quite sure what the perceived 
value would be. I'm sure they had a lot of ideas, and obviously they were more optimistic than what reality was at the time in 2007. So in that same era, uh, let's move and look at Sirius XM for a second. Uh, Sirius and XM were two different companies. They are digital radio in the car, and I was an early adopter for XM. And at the time, I believe I spent probably about $1,500 to add a satellite receiver and a new stereo and an antenna and all this stuff on my old little Nissan so I could get Sirius, uh, well, at the time, I could get XM uh, commercial-free radio. This was before streaming services uh, and before internet-based cell phones. So this was awesome. Very quickly, though, streaming services became more prevalent. The iPhone became more popular. Blackberries were internet-based. Android phones started coming out. And the writing was on the wall that more and more people were using services like Pandora. Uh, and there were earlier ones before that. But uh, And now eventually you move to Spotify and then later Apple Music. Uh, and now most consumers are streaming their music live. But SiriusXM actually really kind of tackled this, and I don't know that they really get the credit they deserve for what they pulled off, but they knew pretty early that this streaming thing was starting to take off, and it was a threat to their business, except the threat to their business was going to be exponentially worse than the threat that they posed to terrestrial radio, which at the time, and still is, was completely free, but it was ad-based. You pay a premium, you get no ads. We know this model. We've seen that a lot since the early 2000s. But SiriusXM saw that streaming services was going to become a threat because if you could stream music on your device anywhere you are at any time and it was affordable, why would you spend an extra $12, $15 a month to have digital radio in your car, which was commercial free, but not on demand. So they couldn't match the value proposition of the streaming services. So what they did was something that at the time was absolutely insane, but it did pay off in the long run. In 2006, Sirius, this was before they merged with XM, Sirius acquired the rights to Howard Stern for what was reportedly a $500 million five-year deal. Now, in radio land, to make $100 million a year on a radio contract was unheard of. And at the time, Sirius got a lot of criticism, especially from investors and just people like me who followed the story and said, oh my God, what are they thinking? $500 million? How do they possibly ever make that up? Keep in mind, this was before Netflix was streaming. This was early on. I know it feels like it's been around forever, but Netflix only started streaming in 2007. So $500 million before Netflix was a streaming service, SiriusXM, I keep saying SiriusXM, it was just Sirius at the time, acquires Howard Stern and his show for $500 million. Why? Because they were creating a value you couldn't get anywhere else. You can't get... Howard Stern on Apple Music. You can't get Howard Stern on Spotify. You can't get Howard Stern on Pandora. The only place you can get Howard Stern is on Sirius XM. And they knew at the time when they were serious that Howard Stern had an incredibly loyal fan base and that a lot of those listeners would be willing to spend 10 to $15 a month just to listen to Howard Stern. And the reality is most of the people who did sign up during that time really did probably primarily listen to Howard Stern and then on occasion would tune into some other channels. But this started this trend of creating proprietary content and 
by creating proprietary content, you are creating an environment where it makes it more difficult for someone to find alternatives. If you loved Howard Stern, you're probably not going to just fall back to listening to Glenn Beck and have the same experience. $500 million later, SiriusXM locks up a huge library of what is now proprietary content, which enormously boosts the value of their service and eliminates competitive pressures because nobody else has this. In essence, creating their price to be more elastic. They could raise it now a dollar or two dollars and say, hey, listen, we are giving way more than we used to give, and we know that it's worth the extra dollar or two. And they have done this. They acquired XM. Uh, Sirius and XM were vicious competitors. It was always a downward war on price. Uh, of course, when they merged, there was some uh, discussion whether it would get regulator approval or if they would become a monopoly. Uh, they did get the regulatory approval. They basically did become a monopoly of satellite radio streaming. And of course, the prices, despite them saying they had no plans to increase the price at the time, within moments of that deal closing, maybe it was within a year, it was right outside the regulatory window. The prices went up significantly year after year. And now it's about triple what it was back in 2006. But they do offer a ton of content you can only get on SiriusXM whether it is the audio broadcasts of television networks, your favorite news, whether it's CNN, Fox, whatever, that's all there. And you can't get that on Spotify, you can't get that on YouTube, and you can't get it on the other streaming services. They had created a value proposition that would allow them to be more elastic and allow them to increase the price while still growing their subscriber base. And that laid the framework for securing many, many more proprietary exclusive deals, which leads me to the next one, Netflix. Just a year later, they, a DVD rental company, uh, they start getting competitive pressure from the likes of Blockbuster. Blockbuster was a huge rental house. Uh, and even though Blockbuster was on its way out as Netflix became more and more efficient. Blockbuster also invested a ton of money into digital streaming services to directly compete with Netflix. The answer was that Netflix decided to make the show House of Cards. It was a fantastic show. And again, it was proprietary. They spent a lot of money on the production, way more than any other company would have at the time. It was very similar to SiriusXM spending $500 million on Howard Stern. The numbers weren't as large, but they spent a ton of money to acquire the rights to House of Cards. And they spent a ton of money on production to make sure that it was the best show on television. And by all accounts, at the time, it was. And it was a huge hit. Again, it set the groundwork for Netflix to say, we're only charging $8 a month for streaming. How can we move the needle on this and continue to have new adopters and new subscribers and increase our price another dollar, another dollar, another dollar, another dollar. And they did this by building out a huge library of proprietary content. And when you think about it, it makes a lot of sense because the way they were doing it, they had to license these movies from all the big studios and there were probably amazing costs involved in doing that. And now they make their own content. They can do whatever they want with it. They're not paying licensing fees and uh, and it's theirs. Again, it's proprietary content. You cannot get anywhere else. In fact, 
TV networks were almost giving away the old TV shows because nobody was going to spend money for things like Seinfeld or The Office. At the time, these shows had had their run, and it wasn't realistic that people were going to go back and rewatch them, and no one was willing to pay for them. So Netflix secured a lot of these deals to stream these TV shows for pennies on the dollar of what it probably should have been and for what it generated for them. It was brilliant. So this is another example of adding enormous value and giving you the ability to be more flexible on your price elasticity. Now, here's the thing. If Netflix was to cut its price in half today, would they double their subscriber base? My guess is not. I think that anyone who has Netflix has it because they know the value of it. I also think that if Netflix raised their price two or three dollars a month, they probably would get away with it at this point. But we'll see, and I'll keep my fingers crossed because I really don't want to pay for any more streaming services. Another company we can look at as a case study would be Tesla. Tesla offers full self-driving software on all of their new cars. It doesn't actually exist yet, uh, but they are giving the promise that if you pay now, in the near future, you will have semi-autonomous driving capability with your car. Uh, this started out, I believe, at $6,000. Uh, it quickly went to $8,000 for the option. Then Elon Musk said, listen, I think this is going to be so great. It's going to save you so much money. We're going to move it to $10,000. And there, he has speculated that he will probably move it up to $14,000 soon. So there's a couple things going on here we got to think about. The first He's selling something that doesn't even exist yet. So again, he's kind of in that iPhone territory where he's testing the waters. What is it worth for someone to have a car that drives itself? And that's a kind of tough question because you could be the type of person that if you could be on your cell phone and answering emails uh, when you would normally be in your car for an hour a day, maybe you could generate $1,000 an hour or $1,000 a day in additional revenue because of the work you can accomplish while you're in your car being driven around. Uh, it gives the luxury of that first-class black car experience that the rich, rich and powerful will use to be more productive, and it brings it down to the middle class. Now, we could all have a car that comes, picks us up at the door, and brings us to where we need, and we don't have to be involved in the process and continue to work and earn and produce. But again, it doesn't exist yet, so it's really hard to determine exactly what that value is worth. What Tesla did was a little bit different than Apple because, again, they're selling this and it doesn't exist yet. So they sold to people early on and they said, hey, it's going to be $8,000. And then they raised the price to $10,000. Now, the people who paid $8,000 aren't going to be upset. The price went up. My guess is way more people than they expected actually shelled out the eight grand. My guess, and again, I'm not there. I don't know. I'm just making assumptions. My guess is that they had a target in mind and they blew past it. They raised the price to $10,000. And my guess is again, more people than they thought were willing to pay the $10,000. Then Elon Musk comes out and threatens to raise it to $14,000. Again, you're not going to alienate any of your existing customers. They're only, they're only going to get happier. They're going to feel they've gotten more value now. Literally, the value of their car is going up every time he increases the price on this add-on. 
So maybe saying 14,000 is just to drive more people to 10,000, or maybe he really will increase the price to 14,000 and really test if that is the right price. And of course, if a ton of people pay that and it does not have a negative effect on the adoption rate, maybe it goes up to 15,000, maybe it goes up to 20,000. This is a brilliant way to test the waters for price elasticity. What's happening right here is you're selling a product that doesn't exist at a value that you don't know what the value is. It's almost like a reserve auction on eBay. It's really kind of wild. So for some people, I'm sure they'd be willing to pay much, much more than 15,000. And for a lot of people, they'd probably say, yeah, it's not worth 15 grand to not have to hold the wheel while I drive to work in the morning. The other brilliant part about this model is if he does need a quick cash grab. Let's say it's the end of the fourth quarter. The numbers aren't looking quite as good as they can be. He's already increased the price to 14000 He can send a little note out to every Tesla driver that says, hey, buy this before the end of the month, and here's a coupon for $4,000 off. Keep in mind, he's just unlocking software here. So there is no associated cost with each additional car that's added on. That's the brilliance of software licensing. It's what's made Microsoft, Google, and Apple the richest companies on the planet. So another place we see price elasticity is actually by the government. I talked about economically speaking and a, and a little more technical. Uh, in this case, we can talk a little bit more legal. Uh, I'd mentioned before about monopolies with satellite radio and the regulators and the challenges that XM and Sirius had in their merger deal. So this is something I learned in, in researching this episode. Uh, the government actually uses something called an SSNIP test. Uh, and that stands for small but significant and non-transitory increase in price. What this is, is a test that says if an organization can profit from a 5% increase in their prices for at least one year, then that company is, we'll say, eligible for further investigation. Now, they're not saying if you can increase your prices 5% and be profitable that you're a monopoly. What they're saying is really the opposite, which is part two of this. If consumers can find alternatives that would create a loss for that company, then there is absolutely no case or basis for challenging a monopoly. So I realize they should probably write this the other way around, but Really what you're testing is if this company increases the price, is there someplace else for people to go? For example, if Netflix tomorrow said they're going to make it $50 a month, would a lot of people just cancel and stick with HBO Max and be happy with it or Paramount or Hulu or all the other streaming services? Uh, or would they all just pay it and deal with it because they have to have all those shows that are on Netflix? I would guess that a lot of people would, at 50 bucks a month, would probably find alternatives that were more affordable and say that $50 a month is not worth watching the one show that I really enjoy. That's a proprietary Netflix show. I'll see it at someone else's house. But again, this is an interesting test because here we are applying a specific mathematical formula to determine if an organization that you suspect could be a monopoly is even eligible to be legally pursued as a monopoly, right? Because the bottom line is if uh, a monopoly raises their price 5% and they're not a monopoly anymore and there's alternatives, then they're not really a monopoly in the first place. And I think that's kind of what we saw with SiriusXM and the regulators at the time. They said, listen, there's streaming services, there's other things, there's alternative ways to get music on demand in your car. And it doesn't matter if we monopolize satellite radio because the satellite is just a delivery mechanism and a cell phone is a delivery mechanism. There's other competitive delivery mechanisms. 
So going through all these stories, what really is the bottom line and what do I want you to understand? My goal is that you understand that creating additional value can afford you the ability to increase your prices and in turn, hopefully your profit not necessarily with an underlying cost increase, right? So if you sell a product, uh, if you can somehow create more value in that product, you can obviously raise the price, even though the cost of the product doesn't change. And the better you can increase the value, the more elastic your price is going to be and the more you can charge. And we see this all the time. Come on, this isn't new. You know, you've been to business. You buy, you've probably bought something really stupid and overpriced in your lifetime because you just had to have it. Because in your mind, there was some incredible value that was offered that you couldn't get elsewhere. I mean, fashion is the epitome of this, right? There's a reason that a Michael Kors bag can be three or $400 or that Louis Vuitton luggage could be $20,000 and people buy it. Is it really worth $20,000 in materials and construction? There's no way. Of course not. They create a value proposition and they have price elasticity. Now, here's the thing. If they lowered the price, if you could buy that same Louis Vuitton luggage for $500, uh, would they sell a lot more? Oh, yeah. Yeah. They'd sell way, way more. But you have to think about this. As you sell more volume, there's a lot of associated costs that start to drive up rapidly. You have storage costs, warehousing costs, transportation costs. Now you have to hire more warehouse workers. You've got forklifts. You've got palletizing going on. You've got shipping mechanisms you have to keep track of, all sorts of logistics from suppliers and supply chain. We see this today. It's a disaster. I started the show with that. The supply chain today is nuts. And just because you can make more money, in theory, with a fixed cost, by lowering the price doesn't actually mean you're going to make more money. As we see with these fashion designers, the cost of warehousing and distributing 20 million pieces of a Louis Vuitton luggage set is actually going to be dramatically more expensive per unit than if they're handcrafting one at a time in a factory somewhere and then shipping them off at $20,000 a piece. And you see this with lots of luxury goods, right? Like a Ferrari. Could Ferrari drop their price and be a $20,000 car? Eh, probably not. They'd have to make a lot of things changed and different to accommodate that price point. But yeah, of course, they'd sell a lot more cars. They could also belittle and devalue the perceived value of the Ferrari brand if they did that. Uh, and sometimes you get away with it. We've seen BMW do it, right? BMWs were in the 80s cars that only rich people drove. And now they keep introducing less expensive and more economic models, right? You have a Model 1. Now you can get into a BMW for under $30,000. Some companies take that. Mercedes has done the same thing. In the, in the 80s, if you drove a Mercedes, you were rich. Now, if you want to lease a Mercedes, it's not all that different than leasing an Acura or any luxury car for that matter, but it's certainly not uh, out of the realm for a hardworking middle-class person to have a BMW or a Mercedes. But these are decisions that are not binary decisions. There are a ton of factors that you have to take into consideration. Uh, there's a lot of thought and there's a lot of testing. And like the Apple example, you've got to be super 
careful on how you test this. You can't just have these wildly crazy prices that are going to swing up and down and hope that you find some sweet spot. And that's what makes it so difficult is that you can't test it. And you know, I've said on this show a million times, test, 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 test. Everything is about testing. The more you test, the better and the more efficient you can become, the better your campaigns will be, the better your advertising will be. Just test, 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 test. You can't really do that with pricing. You've got to be really careful. So like Apple did, you got to take all the information you have and hope for the best. And if you are off, those changes have to come slow and maybe quietly, uh, especially if you start something that's too expensive and you get a decent adoption rate, but you know that you really need to bring that price down, you can't do it overnight. Uh, and if you're going to start to decrease the price on something and you have existing customers, you've got to figure out a way to give value to those older customers so they don't feel like they got ripped off. Hey, that's all I got for you today. I, I, I know this is kind of a obscure discussion and there's not really a lot of action items you can take right now. But given the supply chain issues and seeing a lot of the new technology that's coming out these days, it really made me start thinking about how much would I pay for certain things? How much would I pay for Netflix? Uh, I know if it went up a dollar, I wouldn't cancel it. I know if it went up $2 a month, I wouldn't cancel it. If it went up $10 a month, I might cancel it. I can tell you during COVID, I canceled every subscription I have because I had a fear uh, of the unknown. Uh, and I didn't want to waste money on television and entertainment with, with the unknown of whether or not there'd be any money coming in the next week, the next month, the next year. Who knew what was going to happen? Those were the first things to go for me was the streaming services. They're expensive. It adds up. Sirius XM, Netflix, Hulu, Paramount, Apple Music, Spotify. Before you know it, you're spending $100, two, $300 a month on all these streaming services. It's insane. It ends up being more expensive than cable in the long run because every network knows that they're going to hook you on one piece of proprietary content that makes it worth it for you. As a business owner, you've got to think about what is that piece of value that you can add to your product or service that will make people less price sensitive and in effect, make your product more price elastic. Listen, thanks so much for listening. If you find value in this episode, again, please just take a moment to follow or subscribe, leave a review, hit me up on Facebook, marketingandservice.com. There's always some extras in the show notes on the website. That's marketingandservice.com. And if you want to get in touch with me, justin at marketingandservice.com, J-U-S-T-I-N at marketingandservice.com. Thanks so much. I'll catch you on the next one.